0: Previously based in London and now Tokyo, Studio Swine takes a multidisciplinary approach, producing works of art, design, and film. Editor in chief Susie Annetta sat down for a conversation with the studio's Alexander Groves to learn more about the firm's ethos and their vision for the future. This is the Design Dialogues.
1: Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. The last time we sat down and really had a conversation, we talked a bit about Brexit, actually, and <laughs> really? yeah, I think so. And since then, the I two wish of I wish I hadn't voted for that. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> well, don't we wish everybody did? Yeah. <laughs> no. um, and so since then, the two of you have actually relocated from London to Tokyo and had your first child. And I'm, I wanted to talk a little bit about that and maybe see how you think perhaps both or either of those events have changed your perspective on the world and perhaps your work and whether it's changed how you're working.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can't. Uh, we've changed how uh, like our work hugely and uh, I guess it would be a contributing factor, um, but it's not necessarily, it'd be hard to pin down, you know, all the reasons it's changed And so much has gone on outside our own lives, obviously, as well. You know, the world's changed quite a lot. Um, I'd say that we'd already been... When we started um, Studio Swine, very much we're doing these self-initiated projects where we're traveling and um, kind of immersing ourselves in a place for, say, six months or nine months, or whatever it was, um, to do these projects. And I'd say that has that's very much changed, not just because the pandemic, but the nature of our work. Um, before we were very interested in kind of tracing where ma- certain materials came from, and kind of pulling on that thread and seeing that where that would lead us. And that led us to, you know, live in Sao Paulo for somewhere like 12 months and live in Shanghai and um, various places. And then our work became less say about regional identity and maybe less about those kind of materials and more towards trying to find some kind of human connection through a kind of universal like almost primordial language which is what we call ephemeral tech and these immersive installations so uh, i mean before the one of the like a big driving factors as well for the kind of travel was we were very much interested in making films. And so we'd make a product and a film and the film would very much also be as important as the kind of product. Um, now I'd say these immersive installations, we're still fascinated by film and hugely inspired by film, but in some ways, these installations are like entering the film. Um, and so trying to make cinematic kind of moments kind of cinematic worlds but ones that you can experience in a multi-sensory kind of tangible way.
1: So you you sort of touched a little bit on travel um, and obviously how important that has been or how fundamental it's been to certain projects Mm. over the years before now. How did you kind of get around that in the last few years Um, and, and how do you see that changing or morphing in the future with a family planning to travel together how do you see that happening
0: yeah i mean we were living in new york and then we kind of moved to tokyo for a big project and uh, then ended up having a family here and and found it uh, a very nice place to live and we see ourselves as totally settling in japan and not having this nomadic life anymore i mean i think there's pros and cons it was great for making these projects and building the studio in that kind of reputation way but it did mean that we never could have staff um or an office or studio even because you're kind of so nomadic and so we've been just the two of us for like 10 years and seeing our friends and other studios grow to like uh, actually employing quite a number of people. And so, it's, you know, that's meant that um, and my life is just work. <laughs> <And so laughs> I know <and> that feeling. <laughs> and so now we've got like uh, two staff here and we're looking to employ more. And I'm kind of really excited about having a kind of bit of a studio for once and actually settling and there'll still be a lot of traveling for work but um, not like necessarily living uh in other locations as much
1: mm. okay so you mentioned a couple of locations um one that you know i guess in particular is china that you used to, you said you were in shanghai for six mm. months for th- and that i imagine was for the haircut highway yeah. project and then you were in brazil um, was that Cannes City or yeah. Fordlandia Can or both? City. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and then uh, the Fordlandia project was just into the Amazon for like uh, a couple of weeks. It wasn't, um, yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. Um. And then you've also spent quite a bit of time out at sea with some projects mm. um, where you were recovering waste plastic mm. out of the ocean. I'm curious to know, how do you decide, you know, where the next project is going to be and how many of those are self-initiated? Because I guess that's when you're deciding. how How is that sort of coming about and has that changed over the years as well? You talked about the studio and how you're working changing. Is that part of those changes
0: yeah all of those projects were self-initiated and then obviously we needed to kind of bring on sponsors or find some ways to you know enable them but they're all self-initiated and uh, I we just followed our curiosity and kind of becoming interested in you know human hair um, then where does that come from and like researching that and then finding actually we couldn't find any information online which is a sign of a great project I think Uh, because then you know that you're gonna discover something that hasn't been told before and yeah i mean i i remember the moments each time where i've discovered a material and yeah i remember being in a the oldest tobacconist in the world in saint james um james is in london and in j.j fox it's right near st james's palace and it had it has a lot of cigars and churchill used to buy cigars there. oscar wilde used to buy cigarettes there had an unpaid bill actually (laughs) there (laughs) and I was looking at the pipes we're doing a street furniture project and inspired by pipe making I was looking at the pipes and I uh, was I really love pipes they've got this briar wood and it's really beautiful and then they have this mouthpiece that's like this black polished material that has a quality that is it's got a luster to it. It's kind of like plastic, but much nicer than plastic. You can just feel a warmth to it and a tactility in the hand. And yet it wasn't a natural material. And I was just really curious about what it was. And I asked them and they said, oh, it's it's ebonite. And so I looked into ebonite and it's like a hardened, like, like vulcanized rubber that they used to use. It was quite ubiquitous before the invention of plastic. So, you know, it's a fantastic material for insulating against electricity so like the first car batteries were actually ebonite in old ford cars and that's why car batteries are black now they have to dye them dye the plastic black but it's because we that's the right color for a car battery <laughs> and, you know n- and it's uh, i was very excited about it because it's a natural material and um i'd began interest, became interested in rubber itself and learning that rubber you know the industrial revolution they call it the big three you need oil um iron and rubber and you can't have an industrial revolution without that your engines would kind of shake apart they need the kind of gaskets and fittings and what have you so you know and the fanta- fascinating story of rubber and how our world hugely re- requires a lot of rubber and synthetic rubbers th- they're good and you know we've had them since world war ii um nothing beats natural rubber from rubber trees. The Formula One cars, like 80% natural rubber, the tires and same with aeroplanes and surgeons, gloves and condoms and all kinds of things. We'd always heard about this place called Ford when we were in Sao Paulo about the, we met somebody that had been to this American ghost town, um, that looked like the 1950s and was kind of overgrown and in the jungle. And so it's kind of been this, thing in our imagination but we didn't have a project to take us there and when I really explored rubber and things it was like well that it, it all kind of came together.
1: I'm, I'm curious to know whether the two of you, of you are tempted to continue to work with these materials like um, ebonite or human mm. hair or is say what drives you and drives your practice this kind of need or desire to continue to discover new things and these kind of learning opportunities. Would you say that that's a big part of say your motivation
0: yeah I'm really I think that we're really interested in like I'd say dancing on the cliff like on the edge of what's possible and so it's just like striving to find new things and I find that very exciting and I I think that you know I definitely really admire people that can just stick with something and you know, our first project with Sea Chair, it's the first project that used sea plastic and it was before it was in the public consciousness at all. So most of the time people were learning about it for the first time one would present that project. And I definitely think that could have just been, you know, our career for the rest of our lives, but it's just not how we're built. We just love to <laughs> keep exploring <laughs> and I kind of always hoped that it would inspire people to you know do stuff with that. I mean I always felt that with something like sea chair like for me I, I knew that the amount of plastic we could take out of the ocean was minuscule, like meaningless compared to the scale of the problem. So I thought the most important thing was the communication around it and that film has kind of continues to be watched, has had millions of views and, you know, it's the thing that scales from the project. The actual amount of chairs I could count on my two hands that I've made and they've gone into museum collections and I just can't uh, it's just the two of us, I can't make those for the kind of uh, for distribution really. And so I always saw the films as yeah, like I said, the scalable thing that could kind of be international and flow around and people would watch and um, yeah, but we're always trying to find the new thing. And at the moment, we're really into Web3 and um, uh, NFTs and the potential of that. with uh, our installations, really
1: interesting, and so with a couple of your earlier projects, there was a sense of working with, say, scrap or, um, mm. for want of a better word, upcycled materials. Mm. Was that something that you were kind of conscious of at the outset of the practice, mm. or is it something that just kind of happened naturally along the way?
0: No, definitely, it was uh, when we were we were studying at Royal College of Art together on design products and. Um, the time I always felt like that the biggest problem that we all face is obviously climate change and you know the depletion of natural resources and it felt um like design was part of the problem a lot of the times and this kind of feeding into a system where it's constantly like looking to you know consume consume and make more stuff and it was like okay well we want to make more stuff we're, we're totally implicit in that um, but let's do it with the constraint of uh, using only sustainable materials or you know recycling and so um, our, yeah that's always been a constraint that we kind of put on ourselves which I think really is exciting as a kind of creative challenge because um, if you could just use any material you want Um, I don't know it's just not as exciting as you want to make something beautiful or interesting or exciting but you have to have this constraint and so we actually called ourselves swine because we really admired pigs as a kind of um, amazing ability to transform kitchen waste and scraps into say fine parma ham (laughs) or something (laughs) (laughs) and so um, yeah that was like a motive and We were just making work out of my parents' garage, you know, and trying to use uh, scraps. Our very first project actually was called Pig Truck that was all made out of and stuff that I just found in the garage. So that going forward was always a constraint.
1: I wanted to ask you about the role of advocacy and activism in design and if you feel like your work is political... And if you see it as maybe as an act of activism, is that something that you're conscious of?
0: We're probably quite shy about kind of claiming it's political or, or something like that. But ultimately, um, yeah, we're very much interested in... If politics is about presenting a vision of how things could be, then we're very much interested in that. And so um, I think design has a powerful role to play in terms of making change desirable and when we were at RCA you know sustainable, sustainability and sustainable design it was all kind of like a sub-genre and it was something that was seen as very worthy and um, you know okay well let's forget about aesthetics because it's got this worthiness of having this sustainability and we always didn't agree with that and thought no first of all sustainability should be like a prerequisite to what makes good design um it should just be like not a genre but like a a foundation that you wouldn't just like you wouldn't go about making everything out of gold because economically it's uh you know not going to work you shouldn't kind of go about making things out of toxic materials either and because environmentally it wouldn't work so that was for us something that we didn't want to be seen as sustainable design. We just wanted that to be a kind of starting point. And I think the culture's changed now that that is the case. Um, and then also we didn't want to kind of use it as an excuse to make ugly things and make like Weetabix looking furniture or something. <laughs> <laughs> so we always felt that desire is the greatest agent of change. And you know, that you could say all you wanted that you should be eating this because it's better for the environment, you should be wearing this because it 's better for the environment, but unless you make it attractive it 's not really going to drive change and so we were really interested in that and i'd say it 's not to say that our designs were particularly attractive, like sea chair I wouldn't say is like uh, particularly like aesthetically ascetic- beautiful, but the film is something that I was very uh proud of because you know we worked with a fantastic filmmaker, Yuri Boy, and it went on to win like cans kind of golden lion and everything um and all the documentaries that i was watching about sea plastic i was interested in the subject but i couldn't i found it really hard i had to make myself watch those documentaries because they're just really depressing at the end of the day and i thought let's make something really beautiful that's kind of poetic and beautiful and would engage people before they even realize they're watching something about sustainability um so yeah i'd say that's
1: yeah, I kind of want to pick up on two things from what you just said there. I I often feel like in the world of design that, th- that beauty or aesthetics are kind of shunned in a way, that it's sort of mm. put into second or third place. Mm. Um, and I often really wonder why it's not kind of accepted as something that is important. So it's interesting that you've just sort of talked about that as, you know, maybe as desire. Is that how you see it?
0: Yeah, I think I, I'm really interested in... Desire actually. I think that's what got me into design is that I'd look at like photos of Palm Springs by Julius Shulman and I'd kind of get this feeling of yearning desire. And it's they're creating this world, and it, I find that a very, um, yeah, powerful thing. And if you can use it to kind of create positive change, then that's really as a designer like one of the best things you could do i think um and i think the pendulum swing has massively changed on that actually i think that when i was at college so graduating in like 2011 i think that form was seen as something that was a dated thing that designers that just kind of presented these like spectacular forms that was kind of old hat and and it's more about process and more about materials and more about narrative and all of these things and it's not what you see it's what you kind of know and i think there's a huge value to that um but i'd say that swung back now with instagram that designers that are just making these beautiful uh, beautiful objects and beautiful interiors can get these huge followings um from that kind of yearning (laughs) desire and that aspiration Um, and so a platform like instagram has because it's it's before you know it's curated by museums and by press and now uh it's kind of more curated by what resonates with people through those kind of platforms i'd say so i'd say there's now a return to um aesthetics Um, but you know, in a different way, maybe not. uh, um, Yeah.
1: Okay. And I wanted to sort of ask you about responsibility because when you sort of described your early project, the two of you working out of your parents' garage Mm -hmm. and, you know, using scrap materials and sort of setting these constraints for yourselves, I wonder if you feel that you have a sense of responsibility as designers to maybe reducing your footprint or you Mm. know being more kind of ecologically conscious and if that responsibility only lies with designers or if it's also manufacturing i'm sure it's you know the whole system but i wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about that
0: in terms of responsibility i i feel like not as a designer but just as a you know person um and i and i feel like sometimes too much emphasis is put on design as the um thing that could make the difference or the thing that could solve the problems and i really don't think that's the case i just think it's the the problems that we face are so vast and complex and multifaceted and global that the the solutions need to equally be multifaceted and global and and vast and i i think that design on its own can be a pretty ineffective blunt tool i see so many graduate projects with you know wonderful like materials and solutions that are sustainable um but without any without the right kind of environment for them to actually become a reality um that's they're just endless you know um proposals that will never really effectively change anything and so i really believe when it comes to something like plastic pollution for example what. Plastics are just too cheap. That the sustainable alternatives can't compete. That they need the cost of cleanup to be somehow incorporated into the cost of uh, production. And you know, it needs that needs regulations that comes from politics. That needs um, kind of economic change. Like m- maybe they aren't subsidised so much. You know, that's what I I, I think change. It needs to kind of, and resp- that responsibility needs to come from everywhere, really. And so I just feel like a cog within that.
1: So I wanted to ask you next about, I guess, the role of narrative. You sort of touched on that a little bit earlier, um, but documenting your work, storytelling, and film, and the role that that plays in your practice, because you've also been documenting and communicating your projects with film, and they are quite beautiful. Um, and very kind of important as tools of communication in their own right aside from the actual projects and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that like was the, when that decision was made to kind of document and film the projects uh, and maybe what other ambitions you might have you know in the filmmaking realm
0: yeah um, so I mean I we're huge admirers of Eames and I still think they make the best design forms that have you know uh ever been made the idea that they're 10 by 10 of the um shown in primary schools in america i just think is just mind-blowingly brilliant and um so i'd say that really having cinematic ambitions within film uh, i i mean i love the process of making a film right from the beginning of a project i'd start storyboarding the film I'm working on the production and the locations and the storytelling and all of that. I find that hugely exciting. And I'd say that our, uh, I'm hugely influenced. I am always, when I'm kind of working on a project are often refer to scenes from films that I love, you know, Fellini's Casanova or whatever it is. Um, you know, John Luke Goddard and things. So I'd say that, um, that's a kind of major source of inspiration as well and i think films are exciting because you know like jürgen bay was our tutor and he used to say you want to kind of make a world and you make a whole like um, a evocative immersive world and then maybe you manifest a bit of that world with like say a chair that you make um and i see film as a way of making that world even more rich and Come to life even more, and then the products that we make are kind of mani- small manifestations of that. And um, I'd say that with film, I mean, we would we went on a succession of making like films, Sea uh, Chair, Can City, Jar Craft, um, Air Highway, of course, and then uh, they'd, they'd go to like National Geographic and other places. And then we really, the zenith of that kind of uh, work for us was Ford Langer And we spent 10 days filming in the Amazon, probably 10 days filming in different locations um, back in UK, making that work and stuff. And we (laughs) never released it, it's all like still in, uh, yeah, rushes. And it was just, it got so big and so complex. And um, we need like to kind of, have another funding round to kind of complete it I think Uh, but the story's got kind of more and more complex and layered and it kind of yeah so for the time being we're not we're not making those kind of narrative films so much anymore the films that we make are kind of dropping straight into our installations like New Spring and um, Infinity Blue and all these kind of films Um, and trying to yeah uh, make these of slightly surreal worlds
1: okay have you worked with the same production team on each of the films
0: we have worked with we generally work with Uriam Boy and Petr um uh, you know separately both great directors and then yeah shooting in various locations and things so I'd say that's like one of the most consistent things throughout our practice is Uh, who we've worked with filmmaking-wise. Because, you know, in terms of production, the materials and the places we've made it have all been so different that um, we kind of always have to find people for that. Mm.
1: Do you ever foresee a time where you're producing films that are independent from any projects? Is that something that you've considered? Mm. Yeah, I haven't
0: yet, to be honest. Okay. Um,
1: Can you tell us a little bit about... um, I guess what's coming up, what you're allowed to talk about, but maybe what um, what you may have been exploring in terms of the metaverse and NFTs. You mentioned earlier on that that's something that you're interested in at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, we actually created uh, another studio to deal with um, kind of art installations and um, Web3. And so we've got Studio Swine that's still very much like design and it's and then A.A. Murakami is our artist name. And I, we found that separation hugely helpful because I do think there are different ways of thinking. And also, we just love design and love furniture and interiors and all these kind of things. And so now we feel like quite free that we can just pursue that with Studio Swine in a very kind of pure almost traditional way. And with AM Murakami, we can explore these like immersive installations and the whole new world of Web3 and all of that. And so with Studio Swine, what's coming up is we're actually building a house um, in Hayama, like it's about an hour outside of Tokyo. And so it's going to be a big project for us in terms of it's our own house and studio and, you know, doing the interior and everything and really designing the we call it like the art of living, really. Um, and then with A.A. Murakami, they're what we call ephemeral tech with these immersive installations where the interface of the technology is not screens, but actually tangible, multisensory, ephemeral matter or phenomenon like foggy bubbles and fog rings and scent and plasma and all these kind of things. And we're very much interested in connecting that to the blockchain. So these things would be on-chain off-screen and part of something we're building called the metaverse, which is not a metaverse, not a virtual world, but a real world, um, a real physical world you can enter and, you know, interact with, but it's based on-chain and um, yeah, that's, that's our kind of big project in that regard.
1: Okay, it sounds exciting. I have no idea what you just said. (laughs) I'm so not good with the tech stuff, but that sounds interesting though. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Alex. Thank you so much. It's been great catching up. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for having us.